Section 5 of Despoilers of the Golden Empire by David Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16. To be read after you have finished Despoilers of the Golden Empire. Dear John, it has been brought to my attention by those who have read the story that Despoilers of the Golden Empire might conceivably be charged with being a reader cheater i.e. that it does not play fair with the reader but leads him astray by means of false statements. Naturally, I feel it me bound in duty to refute such scurrilous and untrue affronts and thus save myself from opprobrium. Therefore, I address what follows to the interested reader. It cannot be denied that you must have been misled when you read the story. Indeed, I'd be the last to deny it, since I intended that you should be misled. What I must certainly do deny is any implication that such misleading was accomplished by the telling of untruths. A fiction writer is, by definition, a professional liar. He makes his living by telling interesting lies on paper and selling the results to the highest bidder for publication. Since fiction writing is my livelihood, I cannot and will not deny that I am an accomplished liar, indeed almost an habitual one. Therefore, I feel some small peak when, on the one occasion in which I stick strictly to the truth, I am accused of fraud. Fooey, say I, I refute you, I deny the allegation, and I defy the alligator. To prove my case, I shall take several examples from despoilers and show that the statements made are perfectly valid. Please note that I do not claim any absolute accuracy for such details as quoted dialogue, except that none of the characters lies. I simply contend that the story is as accurate as any other good historical novelette. I also might say here that any resemblance between despoilers and any story picked at random from the late lamented planet stories is purely intentional and carefully contrived. Take the first sentence. In the seven centuries that elapsed since the Second Empire had been founded on the shattered remnants of the first, the nobles of the Imperium had come slowly to realize that the Empire was not to be judged by the examples of the predecessor. Perfectly true. By the time of the Renaissance, the nobles of the Holy Roman Empire knew that their Empire was not just a continuation of the Roman Empire, but a new entity. The old Roman Empire had collapsed in the 6th century, and the Holy Roman Empire, which was actually a loose confederation of Germanic states, did not come into being until A.D. 800, when Carl de Grossa, Charlemagne, was crowned emperor by the Pope. Anyone who wishes to quibble that the date should be postponed for a century and a half until the time of the German Prince Otto may do so. I will ignore him. A few paragraphs later, I said, Without power, neither civilization nor the empire could hold itself together, and his universal majesty, the emperor Karl, well knew it, and power was linked solidly to one element, one metal, the metal, as I said later on, was gold 197. By power, of course, I meant political and economic power. In the 16th century, that's what almost anyone would have meant. If you choose to interpret it as meaning energy per unit time, well, that's real tough. Why nail the power metal down to an isotope of gold with an atomic weight of 197? Because that's the only naturally occurring isotope of gold. The Emperor Karl was, of course, Charles V, who also happened to be King of Spain and therefore Pizarro's sovereign. 
I Germanicized his name as I did the others. Francisco Pizarro becomes Frank, etc. But this is perfectly legitimate. After all, the king's name in Latin, which was used in all state papers, was Carolus. The Spanish called him Carlos, and history books in English call him Charles. Either Carl with a K or Carl with a C is just as legitimate as Charles, certainly, and the same applies to the other names in the story. As to the title, His Universal Majesty, that's exactly what he was called. It is usually translated as His Catholic Majesty, but the word Catholic comes from the Greek katholikos, meaning universal. And further on in the story, when the term universal assembly is used, it is a direct translation of the Greek term ecclesia catholicos, and is actually a better translation than Catholic Church, since the English word church comes from the Greek kyriakon, meaning the house of the Lord. In other words, a church building, not the organization as a whole. Toward the end of chapter one, I wrote, Throughout the empire, research laboratories worked tirelessly at the problem of transmuting commoner elements into gold-197, but thus far none of the processes was commercially feasible. I think you will admit that the alchemists never found a method of transmuting the elements, certainly none which was commercially feasible. In Chapter 3, the statement that Pizarro left his home, Spain, with undermanned ships and had to sneak off illegally before the king's inspectors checked up on him, is historically accurate. And who can argue with the statement that there wasn't a scientist worthy of the name in the whole outfit? At the beginning of chapter 4, you'll find, due to an atmospheric disturbance, the ship's landing was several hundred miles from the point the commander had originally picked, and the ship simply wasn't built for atmospheric navigation. The adverse winds which drove bizarro ships off course were certainly atmospheric disturbances, and I defy anyone to prove that a 16th century Spanish galleon was built for atmospheric navigation. And I must insist that using the term carrier instead of horse, while misleading, is not inaccurate. However, I would like to know just what sort of a picture the term conjured up in the reader's mind. In chapter 10, in the battle scene, you'll find the following. The combination of attackers from both sides plus the fact that the heavy armor was a little unwieldy, overbalanced him, the commander. He toppled to the ground with a clash of steel as he and the carrier parted company. Without a human hand at its controls, the carrier automatically moved away from the mass of struggling fighters and came to a halt well away from the battle. To be perfectly honest, it's somewhat of a strain on my mind to imagine anyone building a robot-controlled machine as good as all that, and then giving the drive such poor protection that he can fall off of it. One of the great screams from my critics has been occasioned by the fact that I referred several times to the Spaniards as Earthmen. I can't see why. In order not to confuse the reader, I invariably referred to them as the invading Earthmen, so as to make a clear distinction between them and the native Earthmen, or Incas, who were native to Peru. If this be treachery, then make the most of it. In other words, I contend that I simply did what any other good detective story writer tries to do, mislead the reader without lying to him. Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, for instance, uses the device of telling the story from the murderer's viewpoint in the first person without revealing that he is the murderer. Likewise, John Dixon Carr, in his Nine Wrong Answers, finds himself forced to deny that he has lied to the reader 
although he admits that one of his characters certainly lied. Both Carr and Christie told the absolute truth within the framework of the story and left it to the reader to delude himself. It all depends on the viewpoint. The statement, we all liked Father Goodhart very much, means one thing when said by a member of his old parish in the United States, which he left to become a missionary. It means something else again when uttered by a member of the tribe of cannibals, which the good father attempted unsuccessfully to convert. Similarly, such terms as the gulf between the worlds, the new world, the known universe have one meaning to a science fictioneer and another to a historian. Semantics, anyone? In chapter 10, right at the beginning, there is a conversation between Commander Frank and Freighter Vincent, an agent of the assembly, Reed Priest. If the reader will go back over that section, keeping in mind the fact that what they are actually talking about are the Catholic Church and the Christian religion, as seen from the viewpoint of a couple of fanatically devout 16th century Spaniards, he will understand the method I used in presenting the whole story. Let me quote. Mentally, the commander went through the symbol patterns that he had learned as a child, the symbol patterns that brought him into direct contact with the ultimate power, the power that controlled not only the spinning of atoms and the whirling of electrons in their orbits, but the workings of probability itself. Obviously, he is reciting the Pater Noster and the Ave Maria. The rest of the sentence is self-explanatory. So is the following. Once indoctrinated into the teachings of the Universal Assembly, any man could tap that power to a greater or lesser degree, depending on his mental control and ethical attitude. At the top level, a first-class adept would utilize that power for telepathy, psychokinesis, levitation, teleportation, and other powers that the commander only vaguely understood. It doesn't matter whether you believe in the miracles attributed to many of the saints, Pizarro certainly did. His faith in that power was as certain as the modern faith in the power of the atomic bomb. As a matter of fact, it was very probably that hard, unyielding faith which made the 16th century Spaniard the almost superhuman being that he was. Only Spain of the 16th century could have produced the conquistadors or such a man as St. Ignatius Loyola, whose learned, devout, and fanatically militant society of Jesus struck fear into the hearts of Protestants and Catholic princes alike for the next two centuries. The regular reader of Astounding may remember that I gave another example of the technique of truthful misdirection in The Best Policy, July 1957. An earthman, captured by aliens, finds himself in a position in which he is unable to tell even the smallest lie. But by telling the absolute truth, he convinces the aliens that Homo sapiens is a race of super-duper supermen. He does it so well that the aliens surrender without attacking, even before the rest of humanity is aware of their existence. The facts and despoilers of the Golden Empire remain. They are facts. Francisco Pizarro and his men, an army of less than 200, actually did inflict appalling damage on the Inca armies, even if they were outnumbered ten to one, and with astonishingly few losses of their own. They did it with sheer guts, too. Their equipment was not too greatly superior to that of the Peruvians, and by the time they reached the great Inca himself, none of the Peruvians believed that the invaders were demons or gods but in the face of the Spaniards' determined onslaught, they were powerless. 
the assassination scene at the end is almost an exact description of what happened it did take a dozen men in full armor to kill the armorless pizarro and even then it took trickery and treachery to do it now just to show how fair i was to show how i scrupulously refrained from lying i will show you what a sacrifice i made for the sake of truth if you recall in the story the dying pizarro traces the sign of cross on the floor in his own blood kisses it and says jesus before he dies this is in strict accord with every history on the subject i could find but there is a legend to the effect that his last words were somewhat different i searched the new york public library for days trying to find one single historian who would bear out the legend i even went so far as to get a librarian who could read spanish and another whose german is somewhat better than mine to translate articles in foreign historical journals for me all in vain but if i could have substantiated the legend the final scene would have read something like this clawing at his sword-torn throat the fearless old soldier brought his hand away coated with the crimson of his own blood falling forward he traced the sign of the cross on the stone floor in gleaming scarlet kissed it and then glared up at the men who surrounded him his eyes hard with anger and hate i'm going to heaven he said his voice harsh and whispery and you you bastards can go to hell it would have made one hell of an ending but it had to be sacrificed in the interests of truth so i rest my case i will even go further than that i defy anyone to point out a single out-and-out lie in the whole story go on i dare you secret aside to the reader j w c jr please do not read ah but wait there is a villain in the piece i did not lie to you no but you were lied to all the same by whom by none less than that conniving arch-fiend john w campbell jr that's who wasn't it he who bought the story and wasn't it he who with malice aforethought published it in a package which was plainly labeled science fiction and therefore didn't you have every right to think it was science fiction sure you did i am guilty of nothing more than weakness my poor frail sense of ethics collapsed completely at the sight of the bribe he offered me to become a party to the dark conspiracy that sprang from the depths of his own demoniacal mind ah well none of us is perfect i suppose david gordon end of chapter sixteen end of section five end of despoilers of the golden empire by david gordon